It's true that if you sit under my ministry for any length of time, you are likely to hear me mention some of the things that went on in the early so-called Christian monasteries. As the monks would be there in the dungeons in the bowels of the monastery. And when they would pass one in the hall, they would say to each other, Brother, we must die. And the response from the monk coming the other way was, Yes, brother, we must die. This is, what, this is the life, what, what happy guys, right? I mean, they would uh, beat themselves, self-flagellation. Luther even practiced that, that he would take a whip and whip himself because of his sin. And they would take vows of poverty and vows of silence and vows of fasting and things like that. What a happy lot these guys were. The fact of the matter is, however, that they were actually practicing these things often because they felt that they were dealing with their sin. They recognized that they were sinners. They realized that sin was an offense to God and they were taking their sin seriously and they were attempting to, as we just read in Romans chapter 8, put it to death, mortify their sin. They were striving to mortify their sin, attempting to deal with it. And there's nothing wrong with that. What may be wrong is the way that they were going about it and the things that they were doing to try to mortify their sins. The fact is, however, that one of the great downfalls of the Christian church today in our day is that men are not taught to mortify their sins. Men are not taught that sin is sin and that they need to deal with it. Men are not taught that they're dead in their trespasses and in their sins. And if they're not saved by the grace of God, they will not go to heaven. In fact, this entire series that we have been dealing with on forgiveness, which we conclude today, has been an effort to show that we're sinners and we need forgiveness or we go to hell. I had a vivid reminder just last week that you can't say that in many churches. But it's true. This is what salvation is. It is salvation from the wrath of God. And it is sin that must be forgiven or you will suffer the wrath of God. But... With that said, with an understanding that we need to teach our members about sin and the fact that they need to mortify sin, with that said, that's not all there is to the Christian life. That's not the whole extent of it. And I would be remiss as your pastor if all I did was week after week after week beat you over the head with your own sin. You're a sinner! You're in hell! You're you're terrible! You're horrible! I don't want to do that. Yes, 
I do teach what the Bible teaches about sin. But I want to bring to you what the Bible teaches also regarding the Christian life being a life of peace and joy. I want to bring to you the whole counsel of the Word of God regarding what the Christian life is. And so today, we turn our attention to an area that some, shall we say, Reformed churches seldom mention and sometimes neglect or ignore, who constantly teach and preach one note, the judgment of God. Repent! I don't want to do that. Churches that do that are missing many other great and wonderful elements of the Christian faith. In fact, they're missing the entire other side of the story. The joy, the love, the peace that comes when you are a truly saved man or woman. When you have experienced forgiveness, there are things that will follow. This is what we've been seeing in our study under the final area, the evidence of forgiveness. We've seen that there will be love for Jesus. And there will be love for the brethren. There will be a living for Him because you love Him. And that does mean striving for holiness. That does mean striving to deal with your sin and to mortify your sin because you love Jesus. Because you love Jesus and are saved, you'll love the brethren. And there will be thanks to Him. There will be expressions of appreciation to Jesus, to God, and to the brethren. Thankfulness is part and parcel of a genuinely saved man or woman. And there will be worship. Worship to God. Worship to Jesus for what He has done. We come in response to what He has done as we come in worship. We also see that we will be those who are forgiving. Jesus told us that you, if you've been forgiven, you will be forgiving. And we saw that not only will we be forgiving, we will be those who will tell the world who forgave us. We will be evangelical. Now last week, we looked at Romans chapter 8, which I just read for you. And we saw from Romans chapter 8 that the one that does not live by the Spirit, Paul says, you will die, you must die. In other words... If you are not living by the Spirit, you're lost. But if you are truly saved, truly forgiven, you will be one who is being led by the Spirit. A forgiven man, a forgiven woman, a forgiven boy or girl will be led by the Spirit. Now, what does that translate to? Turn in your Bibles to Galatians chapter 5. Galatians chapter 5. The epistle by the Apostle Paul to the church at Galatia. He says in verse 22, But the fruit of the Spirit, okay? You're living by the Spirit. 
Here's the fruit of that. Is love. We talked about that. If you are a Christian, filled with the Spirit, led by the Spirit, you will love. You will love God. You will love the brethren. You will be a one who is characterized by love. I seem to remember that as we dealt with this in this series, we mentioned the fact that the gospel spread rapidly in those early days because Rome was so cruel and Christians showed love. And people wanted to know where this came from. So it gave them great opportunities to speak about Jesus. But then last Lord's Day, we saw the third one he mentions, peace. We kind of skipped over joy, because I wanted to leave you with some joy. But we skipped over joy, and last Lord's Day, we looked at the fact that you will have peace. Evidence of forgiveness in your life will be that you will experience Peace, it is, even as we say, a fruit of the Spirit. This is what Jesus was born to give. As we looked at that, usually kept for Christmas time, that passage there in the Gospel of Luke, where the angel came and said, Peace on earth to men with whom he is well pleased. We made the point, who on earth is God well pleased with? Because you can't please God in the way that you live, in the works that you do. It is impossible for men to please God. And so he is certainly speaking of those who have been saved by the grace of God. Because only those who have been saved by God are those who are able to please God. And so the angel right at the birth of the Savior is saying, Peace! To those with whom he is well pleased. Peace to you who are saved by his grace. We went on to see a little bit further regarding this thing called peace. That it is what Jesus promises to give his followers. He says, my peace I give you. My peace I leave with you. Imagine having the very peace of Jesus with you. And in that regard, we pointed to the disciples. As the disciples would have been walking with Jesus, they would encounter various circumstances and times where they may have been scared, frightened, upset. And we noticed in that one point in particular, they were in that boat. And a storm came, and Jesus was asleep. And they came and said, Jesus, wake up! Don't you care that we are perishing? And he calmed the storm, the winds and the waves. What manner of man is this? And don't you think that through all the times that the disciples were then with Jesus, they'd have a real confidence that we can do anything with this guy, with him by our side. They felt peace and confidence because they walked with Christ. That's the same peace he said, I leave with you. I'm not going to leave you alone. I'm giving you the Holy Spirit and I'm giving you my peace. And then he says in John 
These things I have spoken to you, that in me you have peace. In the world you have tribulation, but take courage, I have overcome the world. What can the world do to us when we have Jesus? That ought to give you real peace. But that's what we looked at last Lord's Day and this Lord's Day. I want to go on from seeing and dealing with that peace that passes all understanding. The world doesn't understand it, but you do, because you have Jesus. But from that peace that passes all understanding, and take up today with our last point in this series, that one who has been forgiven will, according to verse 22 here, see that fruit of the Spirit, which is love, joy, and peace. We're not going to be able to get to the rest, but joy. A true Christian will have true joy. The word is kara in the Greek, joy or gladness. Christians who are led by the Spirit will not be downcast. (laughs) Moping through life or sitting on the front pew going, (laughs) scowling at the preacher. They will not be morbid. They will not be morose. True Christians will have joy. That's the fruit of the Spirit. Joy. Love. Joy. And peace. Christians should have joy. Now, if you would, let's go back to that account of the birth of Christ again in Luke chapter 2 and see that he not only speaks about peace, as we saw last week, but he speaks of joy. Luke chapter 2. He being the angel. Pick it up in verse 8, Luke chapter 2. In the same region there were some shepherds staying out in the fields and keeping watch over their flocks by night. And an angel of the Lord suddenly stood before them, and the glory of the Lord shone round about them, And they were terribly frightened. But the angel said to them, Do not be afraid, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy, which will be for all the people. I bring you good news of great joy. This is good news. The Savior has been born. The Savior has come. That good news is the word euangelizo here. It comes from that euangelion. It means the gospel. That's what is translated the gospel. The gospel is good news. And that good news that Christ has been born, that the Savior has come, brings joy. How does the hymn go? Joy to the world. The Lord is born. Where does that come from? Right here. I bring you good news of great joy, which will be for all the people. Joy to the world. Now, I want you to notice that it does not say, Woe is me to the world. Oh, I'm feeling bad to the world. It's joy 
It's rejoicing. It's excitement. It's the opposite of what many people do when they go to church. Because many people go to church and stew, emote, slump, mumble. This is rejoice. Have joy. Joy to the world. The Lord is born. Part of the reason that Jesus came was not only to bring peace, as we saw last week, but it is to bring joy. And it is not carnal joy that he's speaking about. Just as we talked about last week with peace, it's not just the absence of war. That can be use of the word peace. Joy, some people can think of partying. It's not carnal, sinful, worldly joy. It's spiritual joy. It has to do with the Savior. It has to do with the God who is God, who came to be a man and gave his life that you would live. That gave his life that you would be saved from your sins and go to heaven. It is spiritual joy. And it's not a little joy. It's great joy. It's not temporary joy. It's eternal joy. Look now to Matthew chapter 5, if you would, and see that this is what our Lord said himself. Matthew chapter 5. In what we commonly call the Sermon on the Mount, Shortly after the Beatitudes, we pick up the reading in verse 11. Blessed are you when people insult you. Now, isn't that sort of like the opposite of what people think? Blessed are you when people insult you. In some cases, you deserve it. But this has to do with Jesus. It seems the opposite of what most people would think, but it says, blessed Are you when people insult you and persecute you and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me? So it's not like we're saying it's a good thing when people just randomly insult you or persecute you. But he's saying you're blessed when it's because of me. Now what does that mean? He's talking about when you take a stand for him, when you live for him. When you preach his word, when you hold fast to his truth, you stand for Christ and you're insulted. You stand for Christ and you're persecuted. And Jesus is saying, you're blessed. How can that be? Because you're blessed in his eyes. You're blessed in his eyes. He goes on. Rejoice and be glad. Why? For your reward is. In heaven is great. For in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Your reward in heaven is what he's viewing. That's what he's pointing to. It's not like we have fun when people insult us or mock us or persecute us. But we know in our hearts that no matter what they do to us, we're on our way to glory. We're on our way to heaven. And so, we have joy. We rejoice. No matter what the world may do to us. And and sometimes it's subtle 
and sometimes it's blatant, and in all cases it, it hurts. But yet we know we're bound for heaven, so we have joy. No matter what the world may do to me, I have joy in knowing my Savior Jesus. I have that joy that He gives. People, if you have eternal life, if you've been saved and you know you have eternal life with Christ in heaven, what can the world do to you to take away the joy of that? This world is but a few years. Now, in some cases, it's a few more. But this world is really but a few years. A hundred years, maybe? hundred and ten? Eternity is eternal. Eternity is forever. That's why John Newton wrote, When we've been there ten thousand years, bright shining as the sun, We've no less days to sing His praise than when we first begun. It's eternal. It's everlasting. It's forever. We can't comprehend that. But it's going to be longer than this. A lot longer than this. And so we get all frustrated, upset, and mad, and hurt over things that happen in this brief period of our life when we should rejoice when we are insulted and rejoice when we are persecuted because we know ultimately we're bringing honor to our Savior and we will be with Him forever, forever, eternally. So we have joy. Look at how Jesus puts this in Luke's Gospel. Luke chapter 6. Now these are words you might not expect to hear from your Savior. And I know you've read them, but I wonder if you've ever read them. Did you see, you see what he says? Look at Luke chapter 6 down to verse 22. Blessed are you when men hate you and ostracize you and insult you and scorn your name as evil for the sake of the Son of Man. That's pretty extensive. Like I said, we had a bit of a uh, vivid illustration of that last week. And it's a scorning and an ostracizing and an insulting. And they did so for the sake of the Son of Man. Look what he says in verse 23. Be glad in that day and leap for joy. You ever hear Jesus say that? Leap for joy. What a vivid picture. And you know what the picture is. Just dancing and celebrating and leaping for joy. When people insult you, when people ostracize you, when people scorn, when you're doing the right thing for Jesus, proclaiming His truth and proclaiming His word, let them scorn. Let them mock. Let them insult. We will leap for joy. Again, I say to you, that doesn't mean that it doesn't hurt. We're not fools. It's not like we don't have emotions or feelings. But the fact of the matter is, no matter what men may do, we have joy in Christ. 
We rejoice. We leap for joy that we were counted worthy to be beaten for the name of Jesus. We rejoice. This is what our Lord says. Peter puts it like this. So look over to 1 Peter chapter 1. 1 Peter chapter 1. The trials, the tears, the heartaches of this life are momentary. It's eternity that matters. And a forgiven man is going to go to heaven. So he has joy. And Peter puts it like this. 1 Peter chapter 1, look at verse 6. In this you greatly rejoice, even though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been distressed by various trials. Talking about those that he's writing to who love Jesus and who are going through difficult times. He says, you rejoice in this, even though now you're going through a time of distress and trials, so that the proof of your faith, being more precious than gold, which is perishable, even though tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. And though you have not seen Him, You love Him. And though you do not see Him now, but you believe in Him, you greatly rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your soul. You have joy inexpressible. You cannot properly even put it into words. Because you know you're saved. You have salvation. And I remind you, what is salvation? Salvation is being saved from the wrath of God. Salvation means your sins, your sin debt has been paid for. You're forgiven. So a forgiven man is a man who should have joy inexpressible. I cannot adequately and satisfactorily even express to you the joy that I have knowing that I'm saved. I think sometimes it's a good thing, as we read already, that the world looks at us as if we're nuts. They think we're crazy. They think we're foolish because we have joy, because we have peace. The world doesn't get it. Because they don't know God. They don't know Jesus. And they don't know what it means to be saved. So let them mock. Let them ridicule. Let them call us naive or fools. We'll take it. We're still going to heaven. And they're not. That's reality. Even though they would say it's not. We know. Because God has blessed us with eyes to see and ears to hear the things of His Word. Now let's see where all this kind of comes from. If you would turn back to the Gospel of John at this time. John chapter 15. John chapter 15. We began by talking about joy being the fruit of the Spirit. And we see here that this joy comes from God, the Holy Spirit, that He gives us joy. Verse 10, chapter 15. 
Jesus says, if you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. Now, we looked at this already, showing indeed that if you are a Christian, if you are forgiven, you are going to be one who loves Jesus. And if you love him, you will keep his commandments. That's sanctification, progressive sanctification. That's evidence that you're saved. You're going to love Jesus, and one who loves Jesus is going to keep his commandments. So he says, keep my commandments, and you abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. These things I have spoken to you so that my joy may be in you, and that your joy may be made full. Wow. I was taken back last week when we talked about the fact that Jesus said, My peace I leave with you. Can you imagine having the very peace that Jesus had? You go through the Gospels and you see Jesus and it seems like nothing rattles him. Nothing upsets him. Doesn't mean that he doesn't get zealous. Doesn't mean that he's not zealous for truth and gets right into the face of the scribes and the Pharisees and teaches them the truth. Doesn't mean he's emotionless. But he knows he's in control. And nothing can upset him or get him off track. He has peace that he promises to leave with you. And now, he says, I leave you my joy. My joy. The very Joy of Jesus. Now stop and think about what that might mean. Here's Jesus, who came from glory, being in the presence of the Father. How could there be any greater joy than to be in the presence of God the Father from all eternity, enjoying the Creator, being in the presence of God. And this is the joy that Jesus had from all eternity. That, he says, he gives you. My joy may be in you, and that your joy may be full. Full joy. My joy remains in you, as some describe it. And this is the joy that Jesus had with the Father. And this is the joy that the disciples had with being, while they were with Jesus, while he was on earth, while they walked with him. They had and they experienced the joy of very God among men. And he says he's going to give it with them. And then he says it's going to be filled up. Pleruo, filled up. That's what it means. To be filled up to the full. That's what Jesus is saying. To be filled up to the full with my joy. How many Christians live like that? Christians let little things bother them. And I'm thinking particularly in church. You know, you go to church and somebody says something and people get bent out of shape. People preach, the preacher preach too long. Is that having the, the joy of Jesus filled up to the full? This is what Jesus said 
He gives us His joy that we would be filled up to the full with joy. That's pretty strong. Now, how does that happen? Where does that come from? Well, let's take the context of what Jesus is saying here in John 15. First of all, he says in verse 5, I am the vine and you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him, he bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. You're abiding in Jesus. So when you're abiding in Jesus, that's when you're going to have joy that's filled up to the full. And furthermore, if anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away as a branch and dries up. And they gather them and cast them into the fire and they are burned. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. My Father is glorified by this, that you bear much fruit, so that you prove to be my disciples. Bearing fruit, abiding in Christ and bearing fruit, doing the work of the gospel, bearing fruit, telling others about Jesus, telling others about his love, telling others about his whole, the Holy Spirit, telling others about his sacrificial death on the cross, telling others why he came. He came to give his life a ransom for many. He came to die that sins would be forgiving. Telling others. Bearing fruit, abiding in Christ, this is where joy comes from. You know why a lot of people don't have joy? Because they never tell anybody about Jesus. And they're not abiding in Him. Because if you abide in Him, you will be telling others about Jesus. You will be evangelical. It was one of the things we mentioned. It is the evidence of being forgiven. You'll tell others like that demon-possessed man did. When Jesus came and drove the demons out into the pigs and the pigs ran down the hill into the sea and died, that man went back and told the entire city what Jesus did for them so that the next time Jesus came back, the whole city wanted to see him. Tell others, bear fruit, abide in Christ, and you'll have joy to the full, filled up to the full. This is the context of what he's saying. The context of what he's saying, that you will have joy. My joy is in you. How do you have his joy in you if you're not connected to him? How do you have his joy if you're not abiding in him? We have churches filled with people who have no joy because they're not connected to Jesus. They've never been saved They're just church members, churchgoers, religious. But you, my friends, if you have genuinely be forgiven, you abide in Jesus and you get from Jesus his joy, his joy in you. Like that sap from the trunk of the tree that goes to the branches and out to the leaves and the fruit. We abide in Christ. We have His joy. It runs out to us bearing fruit for His kingdom. That's real joy. Wouldn't it be joyful to see a lot more people here? We tell others about Jesus. We bear fruit 
as we abide in Him. And that brings joy. Look over the page, if you would, chapter 16. Go to verse 24. Jesus is speaking to the disciples. Until now, you have asked for nothing in my name. Ask and you will receive so that your joy may be made full. Talking about prayer. You're abiding in Christ. You're praying for the right things. You ask him in his name and your joy is made full. Again, this is not win the lottery. Oh, Lord, I love you so much. Please let me win that $4 billion, $400 billion, or whatever it is in the lottery. $400 million, I guess. $400 billion, we'd be able to almost pay back the debt. But I think I just heard on the news today the lottery turned over. And the health and wealth gospel people will tell you, this is for you. God wants you to be rich. You need to have a jet. You need to have that Rolls Royce. You need to have these things. That's what God wants for you. Says so right here in the Bible. Says it right here. That anything you ask for, I'm going to give it to you. You're going to receive it that your joy may be made full. That's the name it and claim it gospel right here in John 16 verse 24. You want to receive good things so you can be happy Just ask Jesus, the vending machine in the sky will give it to you. That's practically what they preach. That's not what Jesus is talking about. That's not it at all. He's speaking about several things again here in the context. Back up to verse 8. Chapter 16 and verse 8. And he, when he comes, speaking of the Holy Spirit, will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment, concerning sin because they do not believe in me, concerning righteousness because I go to the Father and you no longer see me, and concerning judgment because the ruler of this world has been judged. He's telling them that the Holy Spirit is going to come. And the Holy Spirit is going to use them to preach the truth. And the truth of Jesus is going to convict the world. Convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. Then he says in verse 12, I have many more things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. But when he, the Holy Spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all truth. For he will not speak of his own initiative, but whatever he hears, he will speak and he will disclose to you what is to come. He will glorify me, for he will take of mine and will disclose it to you. All things that the Father has are mine. Therefore, I said, he takes of mine and will disclose it to you. So here's what he's saying. The Holy Spirit's going to come. The Holy Spirit is going to convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and truth. And you are the ones who are going to be the bearers of truth. In the power of the Holy Spirit, He will lead you into all truth. And what are they going to do with it? Stay in the upper room? Just stay there with the doors closed forever and never tell anyone? No, they went out through the world so that the world was turned upside down with their teaching just in the book of Acts already. 
People from everywhere were hearing about Jesus and about his word and about the truth that the disciples brought, led by the Holy Spirit. And so it is in the context then of that truth and then in the context of what he goes on to say in verse 20, Truly, truly, I say to you that you will weep and lament, but the world will rejoice. You will grieve, but your grief will be turned into joy. What is he talking about? He's talking about his death, burial, and resurrection. Whenever a woman is in labor, she has pain because her hour has come. But when she gives birth to the child, she no longer remembers the anguish because of the joy that a child has been born into the world. Therefore, you too have grief now, but I will see you again. And your heart will rejoice and no one will take that joy away from you. He's talking about the fact that he's going to die. They're going to lament. They're going to weep. He's going to be buried. But on the third day, he's going to rise again from the dead. They're going to see them and they're going to have joy. And who on earth could ever take that joy away? Think about it. They walked with him for some three years. They saw him die on the cross. And they lamented and they wept. Oh, Peter was upset. He wasn't following. He wasn't lamenting because he denied Christ. All these things, they were scattered. All this stuff. And then he's raised again from the dead. And they see him. Sort of like what we said on the Mount of Transfiguration this morning. They see Jesus for who he is. They see him raised from the dead. There is no doubt. There is no question. There is no way that anyone can ever take that away from them. And they are filled with joy. And they go out and tell the world. That's what he's saying here when he says in verse 22, Ask and you may receive that your joy may be made No one can take away the joy of the resurrected Christ and you will tell the world because the Holy Spirit will come and lead you into all truth and you will tell others and the Holy Spirit will convict them. This is the joy that his people will experience. The reality of the resurrected Jesus changed, changed their lives. And the reality of the resurrected Jesus should change your life. If you really know him raised from the dead, if you really know him to be your savior, your life is changed and no one can ever take away that joy from you. That's the joy he leaves us. Let's look at another. Chapter 17, right over the page. Chapter 17, look down to verse 13. But now I come to you, This isn't Jesus' high priestly prayer. So when he says, but now I come to you, he's not coming to the disciples, he's coming to the Father. He's praying to the Father. And these things I speak in the world so that they may have my joy made full in themselves. He's praying to the Father that you would have his joy, that you would have the joy of Jesus. Can you imagine that? Jesus is praying 
that you would have his joy. There's no reason to think that he stopped doing this. We know that he ever lives to intercede for the brethren. So we're in heaven now, before the throne of God, the Father is praying that you would have the joy of Jesus. If we could only grasp half this stuff, it'd change our lives. Now, I know it's changed our lives, but I think it would change our lives even more. We would not be going, brother, we must die. Yeah, we know that. We'd be going, brother, rejoice! Because Jesus has given us His joy. He's really alive. He's really seated by the right hand of God. And we live for Him, and we're going to go be with Him. Nobody can take that away. So no matter what, we have joy. His joy in us. Jesus giving us His joy. Don't beat yourself up over your sin. Some of you do that. Your sin's forgiven if you're saved. Yes, deal with it. Yes, strive to mortify it. But don't beat yourself like Luther did with a whip. Instead, have the joy of Jesus in your life. Knowing that you're saved. Because if you know Him, you know that He's been raised. You know that you're saved. You know you're going to heaven. You should have joy. It's evidence of a forgiven man or a forgiven woman. This is what Jesus wanted for His people. This is what Jesus gave His disciples. And this is what Jesus gives you. His joy. Isn't that good? We need His joy. Now, I know, again, that we are to put our sins to death. We are to mortify our sins. I know that we are to be diligent in fighting against the world, the flesh, and the devil. But in the midst of these, in the midst, perhaps, of even our greatest battles, we should have His joy in us. So that a forgiven man a forgiven woman will understand what the Apostle Paul says. And this is where we close in Philippians chapter 4. No matter what else may be going on in your life, and please understand that early Christians suffered greatly for the gospel. Think about what early Christians went through under Nero and how they were crucified in the arena even. In the great Colosseum, they would be fed to lions and used as sport. And the sport was killing. And yet, Paul says in Ephesians chapter 4 and verse 4, Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say rejoice. You know, Jesus... You know Him to be your Savior. You know that no matter what the world can do to you and may do to you, you're going to heaven. Then rejoice. Rejoice in the Lord always. Always rejoice because you are forgiven. I don't want to be a church that ignores the joy of Christianity. 
I don't want to be a church that's crazy and jumping around and going nuts, which is not the same thing. I don't want to be a church that thinks that because you're dancing and hopping and hooting and hollering because some band is playing so loud, you can't hear anyone and you can't hear yourself think. I don't care what they say. That's not joy. That's not worship. That's the world in the church. But I don't want to be a church that is theologically sound and still ignores the joy of Christianity. I want to be a church that understands theology, that understands doctrine, and understands the Bible, and the Bible teaches that true Christians will have peace and joy in their lives. So when you come to church, come to church to rejoice, to rejoice as you worship God, to sing praise to the God that we worship, not to go crazy, but to have genuine, heartfelt joy that wells up from inside and spills out in praise to the God of the Bible. Deal with your sin, yes. We don't neglect that. We don't deny that. We don't gloss over sin. But a saved man a saved woman, a forgiven man, a forgiven woman will have joy in their Savior. Joy in their salvation. Now this brings to a close our series on forgiveness. And I want to bring the series to a close by kind of uh, considering where we began and how we got here. We began by seeing under the broad heading the essence of forgiveness that all men are sinners. That all men need to be forgiven of their sin. Otherwise, they will perish in hell. Jesus came preaching the gospel of forgiveness. He told that crippled man, that paralyzed man, your sins are forgiven. He didn't tell him you're healed. He said first your sins are forgiven. Forgiven. Then to show he had the authority to forgive sins, then he healed him and he got up. But forgiveness is at the heart of the problem of the world today. Men are sinners and they need to be forgiven or they will perish in hell. This is our good news. That there exists forgiveness. The essence of forgiveness All men are sinners and they need to be saved. The existence of forgiveness is seen in the Bible, in our God. Gets a bad rap. The God of the Bible is blamed for all of the death and misery in in the world, in the past history and even today. Oh, if only we'd become Muslims, then the world would be at peace, right? That almost seems to be what's being said today. How crazy are these people? The God of the Bible offers men forgiveness. Come unto me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Oh, taste and see that the Lord, he is good. God offers 
forgiveness. He does not mark iniquities, in which case no one would be able to stand. He is a loving God. He is a forgiving God. He declared as he went in front of Moses that he is a God of forgiveness. Oh, know this God. And then this God sends his son, Jesus. And what does his son do? He lives a spotless, perfect life and then gives his life on the cross. And what does the father do? The father pours out the wrath that I deserve on his son on the cross. God is such a loving, forgiving God that He pours out His own wrath upon His dear, beloved Son on the cross that you would have your sins atoned for. He did it for you. What is that verse? God so loved the world that He gave His Son and then poured out His wrath on His Son in your place. So that your sins are atoned for. Remember, you're imprisoned in sin, a slave to sin, and Jesus pays the ransom, and you are set free from your sin. That's what forgiveness is. There is the existence of forgiveness in Christ. Come to Him. And when you do, everyone will know, because there is the evidence of forgiveness in every true Christian. Every true Christian will then live for Jesus. There is no such animal as a carnal Christian. It doesn't exist. A true Christian lives for his Savior because he loves his Savior. A true Christian worships God. A true Christian then has peace and joy in their salvation in this God. And a true Christian will tell others. This is what we've seen over the past practically a year. But God help us to keep these truths in our hearts. God help us to live in accordance with the scriptures. All the scriptures that we have seen over these past few months. God help us to live as though we are forgiven. And that includes joy. Amen? Let's pray.